Well, congregation, as I was reflecting in my study this week and thinking of preparing a message uh, suitable for Mother's Day, I thought about weariness. I think it's uh, something that every mother is, is familiar with. Probably if you asked the mothers even right now what they're feeling, they might tell you they're tired, they're weary. And that led me to this text then in 2 Thessalonians 3 and 13. Which is, but as for you, brethren, and we're going to tonight say sisters as well, do not grow weary of doing good. Do not grow weary of doing good. I think it's especially, as I said already, that there's something especially or uniquely exhausting about mothering. All work is, is tiring, but the continual, perpetual nature of the, the mother's task with, with children and again, tonight we're, we're talking about a mother, right? A, a mother with children. That's, there are many things that exhaust a woman's life and a man's life, but tonight, especially focusing on her, her calling as a mother and how uniquely exhausting that work is. I think probably because of the continual character of it, it just never seems to stop. There, there's always demands made upon them endlessly, over and over, even in the middle of the night, day and night. How exhausting that can be. Well, that brings me then to consider this text with you this, this uh, evening. And our first point is this, our calling. Because the text gives us this calling, do not grow weary of doing good. Now, you can hear the implication in this text already, my friends, right? That this is a person, that uh, Paul is confident that the Thessalonian Christians to whom he is writing are busy doing good already. He's not telling them to get started doing good. They are already in the process of doing good. They're working hard at it. And his exhortation is, don't grow weary in that. In all that work that you're doing, don't grow weary of it. Now, this bears uh, noting, my friends, that our calling in this life is to do good. And our text put it, puts it in the broadest possible terms tonight. Do good. It's just... You can't get any broader than that. that. That includes every effort we make to do good in whatever situation we may be. Now, in the medieval times, the old medieval theologians loved to have lists of seven. And you see there, I put that on the outline, the spiritual works of mercy and the corporal or the bodily works of mercy. Now, that is a really interesting list. It comes from the uh, chapter in Matthew 25 where Jesus is saying, uh, that's when he's uh, talking about what he's going to say on the last day. That's where that list comes from. To instruct the ignorant, to counsel the doubtful, to admonish sinners, to bear wrongs patiently, to forgive offenses willingly, to comfort the afflicted, and to pray for all. And then you have the corporal works of mercy, food and drink and clothing and, and so forth. So these are a, a good list. And I, I thought to put that on the outline there because I think it gives us such a broad uh, uh, overview of all the good that we are called to do in society. Furthermore, my friends, I think that this is an important thing to reflect upon in our own church. In our own church, where we, we stand very strong on the truths of the gospel, that God in Christ forgives us our sin, no matter how heinous that sin may be, God in Christ forgives us our sins, reconciles him, reconciles us to him, and adopts us into his family as his sons and daughters. And we rejoice in that truth. But my friends, biblically, 
that's not the end of the story. In fact, in terms of scripture, that's not even the ultimate purpose of why God saves us. Look at these verses that I've given you here in the outline. The first one there is Ephesians 2 and verse 10. Again, notice the teaching here, for we are his workmanship. In other words, we are God's project, created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, for the purpose of doing good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, my friends, the teaching of that verse is that in the never begun uh, reaches of eternity past, God had a plan. He had a plan to save a people. And we rejoice in that truth. But God had a plan for those people. God had a plan that those people would do good. They are God's workmanship, right? This is not a project of their own. This is not something that God creates them and then says, now go about doing good. No, this is God's workmanship. And yet we are created in Christ Jesus, right? Not in order to get into Christ Jesus, but because we are already in Christ Jesus, we do good. And these good works have been part of God's plan from the very beginning of time. Uh, before the beginning of time, but from before the foundation of the world. So we are taught in Ephesians 2, verse 10. And I think, again, that it maybe is a special temptation in our churches to stop on the principles of the gospel and the forgiveness of our sins and to rest there. But again, the scripture teaches us that we're to go on, to go forward, and to do good. And again, good put there as the broadest possible description of what God expects from us. Titus 2 and verse 14, where we read, Who gave himself, that is, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Now we rejoice in that truth, don't we? The salvation that we have in Christ. He's, he's redeemed us from every lawless deed and from the hell that, that would have been ours if those lawless deeds have remained on our record. But now he goes on. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds. In other words, the good that God calls us to do, God, God, is, God is calling us and expecting zeal in that, to do good. Then Hebrews 13, the third text there. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Now, my friends, we have no altar in this church. We do not bring a lamb or a goat or an ox to sacrifice as under the old covenant. But in our day, we still bring sacrifices. We still bring a sacrifice. And of course, this is particularly relevant in the book of Hebrews, right? Where the author is speaking to Jewish people. He says, bring your sacrifice, but it's not a goat. It's not a sheep. Christ is the sacrifice that ended all those sacrifices. Now you bring the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name, and by not neglecting doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. I think, my friends, isn't that the reason why when we take an offering in this church, it is a unique act of worship. It has its own separate place. You know, in the church I grew up in, the uh, organ would start playing, and we would all start singing, and then the deacons would stand up, and they would collect, they would uh, take the collection while the congregation was singing the song. And again, in a 
in Dutch efficiency is kill two birds with one stone, right? Just collect the money while, while they're singing so we don't have to wait for the collection to be taken. But we don't do that in our churches. Again, I suspect because that offering that we make is a sacrifice that, based on Scripture, is with such a sacrifice, God is pleased. And that is an act of worship. Not a time to tune out and to, and to uh, you know, do something else, but a time to think about offering up that sacrifice to God. Now, in the last place then, Matthew 25 and 37. And again, this is where that list on the right-hand side of that page comes from. In Matthew 25 and verse 37. Uh, verse 37. Then the righteous... Well, let's back up to verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For... And then here you'll read the, the bodily or the corporal works of mercy. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So on that last day, when God draws up the books, you might say, and we are judged, you notice the criterion here that separate the sheep from the goats. So I trust, my friends, that I've made that clear then, that in the theology of the Bible, God saves us from our sin. He redeems us from the hell that we deserved. And he brings us into his family, and he sets us to work, doing good, being zealous for good works. Now, the second thing I see in our text this evening is that in that doing good, as we go about every day, doing the good in whatever situation we are in, we grow weary. There's always this temptation to grow weary. And I struggle even to, to think of it even as a temptation because it just seems such a natural thing, right? That when you are busy, when you are zealous, you grow weary. But it's also the nature of, 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 of a human soul, isn't it? The, the, the way we, we think and act, that we can often begin something with great enthusiasm, right? But then that enthusiasm can begin to flag. It begins to droop. We go up and we go down. Now, this is the character of, of every human being, isn't it? That very few of us are, are so perfectly steady, right? Our life is a, is, a, is a roller coaster almost of ups and downs. We are zealous. We grow weary. Our shoulders begin to slump. Perhaps difficulties come. Obstacles arise. Unforeseen obstacles arise. And we begin to droop. Our spirits begin to get exhausted. And so the text makes it clear to us then that there are these, these times of weariness. This is not something that is unusual. It is not something that should surprise us. It is not unexpected. It is something that comes in the life of all God's children. And when I think of mothers tonight, I can think especially of uh, how, uh, again, in, in one sense, it is so uniquely exhausting a work. After that third and fourth trip to your child's room to resolve some issue at night, who can, who can possibly uh, uh, be surprised that a mother would begin to grow weary? I can tell you that the fathers grow weary after the first trip to the, to the bedroom in the middle of the night. And, and the mothers to whom God has given a bit more perseverance, seem to be able to go on a little longer. But especially those nighttime tears 
crying. Oh, how exhausting that is. And we begin to grow weary. So, my friends, this is the text as it's given us. And I'd like to move then to consider with you these points of application. And in the first place, I'd like you to know the temptation. Know the temptation. Whether you're a mother or whether your, your daughters are mothers or you know mothers. And of course, ultimately, congregation, the applications I make tonight apply to anyone who is busy doing good, right? Just because I'm focusing on mothers this evening, this applies to anybody who is busy doing good. But know the temptation. Now, this was something that Paul was uniquely concerned about in the Thessalonian church. Because you read in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 11, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, this is actually uh, quite an uh, interesting turn of expression for Paul. Because in verse 11, he says, doing no work at all, but acting like, uh, and then the word there is workers around. In other words, these, these, uh, these people who are leading these undisciplined lives, they're not doing any work, but they're working around, right? They're busybodies. They're going about meddling in other people's business, not focusing on the work that God's called them to do, but looking at how other people can be better at what they do. And of course, all the talking that goes on. And Paul's writing in a day when there was no social media. So all the talking and all the interaction that goes around. Working around, says Paul. This is the temptation. We begin to lead undisciplined lives. And again, I appeal to your experience, my friends. It's the same with me as it is with you, right? That when we begin to grow weary, we collapse into our chair, right? And we begin to entertain ourselves with something that is foolish, uh, hopefully not something sinful, but even just something that is not something terribly edifying. And an hour passes, and what Paul says here is so true. We begin to lead an undisciplined life. An undisciplined life. Now, when I say an undisciplined life, I do not mean that we have to have a life regimented, right? into, okay, now I'm going to take 10 minutes for this, then 15 minutes for that, then I'm going to take a five-minute break here and a half hour. I'm not talking about that. I, that, that. That's an extreme as well, isn't it? But Paul's talking about an undisciplined life when you're not able to rule your own spirit and you, and you become lazy. And that is the temptation. That is the temptation for mothers growing weary in their work, and it's the temptation for all of us in any work, whatever good we may be doing, to grow weary in it. Now, the Thessalonian church had a unique situation because they were very concerned about the coming of Christ. And they were very convinced that the coming of Christ was going to come very soon. They didn't think about what Jesus said, that no man knows the hour or the day. But they were convinced that it was going to happen tomorrow, next week, soon. And so many of them abandoned their callings, abandoned their work. And Paul has sharp words for these people. Get back to work, he says. Don't be running around talking about how Jesus is coming back and I'm going to talk here and talk there about this. And it seems very pious. No, Paul says, if Jesus were going to come back tomorrow, go back to work today. Right? And Paul even is very stern for we hear, he says, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. And again, it may very well be, uh, since there was this charitable uh, benevolence, work of benevolence in the churches, right? That some of these people who weren't working were actually receiving funds from the church to survive. And of course, Paul is indignant at that. That is not what those benevolent funds are for. 
go back to work. Don't lead an undisciplined life. So my friends, I want to re-insist uh, again that our text today, Paul assumes that his, uh, the people to whom he is writing are doing good. And he's instructing them not to grow weary. Nevertheless, we need to know the temptation. We need to know the danger that we're trying to avoid. That undisciplined, sloppy kind of living that does not bring glory to God. Well, my friends, my second application may sound a little too easy. Pray the prayer. Pray the prayer. But I wonder if you also noticed with me that beautiful prayer that Paul gives the Thessalonian Christians in verse 5. In 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 5, he says, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. But here we have the answer, don't we? Here we have the, the way to, to answer this weariness, this temptation to become undisciplined and idle. And Paul says here, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. We read about God uh, in our call to worship this morning or this evening. I want to read those words again. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become tired or, or weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. What a precious text, my friends, for those who are weary amongst us. To fix your eyes, to pray that God would direct your heart into the love of this God, who never grows weary, who never fails, and who gives strength to the weary, so that they mount up with wings like an eagle. You've seen the eagles lift up off the ground. You've seen the power in those wings as they gain altitude. And now God says, this is what I do for those who make this prayer to me. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. The love of God in the first place. But in the second place, and into the steadfastness of Christ. Now my friends, that is such a, uh, a beautiful thing for us, particularly as a congregation. Because in our catechism, we have been working through, uh, some months back now, but we've been working through that path of humiliation through which Jesus passed. How he was born in a humble way. He grew up without a, a home. He was tried before Pontius Pilate. He was, his death was a crucifixion, right? And he descended into hell. This is the path that Christ walked. And we went step by step on that path in this church, sermon after sermon, meditating and thinking about this pathway that Christ walked. And now Paul tells us this evening, and I think specifically for us, my friends, consider the steadfastness of Christ. Every step of the way, my friends, he did not faint. He did not falter. He fixed his eye on the path before him, and he went forward. And the author of Hebrews, again, has given us such a beautiful account of that. In Hebrews 12, he says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The same truth, isn't it? May God direct our hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. I almost think that that ought to be on a plaque above your child's bed, mothers, and anyone, maybe in your office. What a beautiful thing to look at every day. Lord, please direct my heart into your love. Please direct my heart into the steadfastness, the patience, the endurance of Jesus Christ. And I think, my friends, then we would have that new strength. We would have that strength like the wings of an eagle to rise up the challenges and the obstacles and the problems we face in our life. And it would be easier every day to continue doing the good that God has called us to do and not to grow weary. Well, in the third place, my friends, my third application is have confidence. Have confidence. Now, here I speak directly to mothers. I don't speak to single women. God has called single women to serve him in a, in a unique way, equally important way. But also as mothers, that's who I'm speaking to this evening. You need to have confidence, my friends, an unshaken confidence that this is God's call on your life. And furthermore, that this is the best life that God could give you. And he lays that out for us in Titus 2, 4 and 5. So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. My friends, how much there is in our society today, an avalanche of pressure and constant messages telling us that this is not the best life, that this is not the best calling for a woman. I'm sorry, the best calling for a mother. I want to speak very precisely tonight. The best calling for a mother. And if you don't have that confidence in your mind, if you don't have that certain in your own mind, and if you have these nagging doubts that there's something better for me, if I could do this or if I could go there, you will grow weary in well-doing. In order, my friends, uh, my dear uh, mothers amongst us, to stand strong and to heed the apostles' exhortation, to not grow weary in well-doing, you must have this confidence that what Scripture says about the life of a mother is really the truth. And again, I emphasize that today because there's so much that goes contrary to it. The, uh, the uh, last week I was with the young people, the uh, middle school retreat, uh, north of Grand Rapids. We had a retreat there. It was very nice. Uh, but I spoke with a young woman who said, I don't want to have kids. Now I get it. They're young, right? I understand that. But I hope, my friends, that that comment didn't come from someone who has been, as it were, drinking at the well of this world and of the culture that is constantly bombarding us. And that that's where that comes from. If that's the case, I, I hope it's not. I trust it's not. But if that's the case, that's a sad commentary on how we raise our young women to have this confidence that as a mother, if God will bless them with a husband, this is their highest and best calling. Otherwise, I, I can't possibly imagine how you would not grow weary in well-doing if you didn't have that confidence strong and certain in your own soul. I speak now in the fourth place, 
find your husband. <laughs> find your husband. Now, I mean that very, uh, very literally, my friends. Because God has given husbands also a calling to do good. And especially one big part of that goodness that the husbands are called to do is to support their wives in the good that they are attempting to do. And that when their wife does grow weary, as they will, that the husband is there to support and to strengthen. And again, the word of God is so clear on this. You husbands, in the same way, 1 Peter 3, 7, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, what is it that you need to understand? As with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. My friends, look carefully at that verse with me. Notice that the text that Peter is, is counseling the husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way, understand that they are physically weaker, understand that they do grow weary since she is a woman. But then he says, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. That yes, God has designed a woman differently than a man. And yet they are both fellow heirs. There's no, there's no inferiority or superiority there. When they stand before God one day, they stand before they're on the same equal footing. Either they are in Christ or they are outside of Christ. They're fellow heirs of the grace of life. But Peter now, in his wisdom, in his discerning way, he says, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker. And so, husbands, this is one of the good things. This is doing good. A big part of your doing good. If you are married, to minister to your wife in this way and to support her. What a blessing it is, my friends, when we can see a husband and a wife facing the challenges and the obstacles, the, the trials of life, shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, hand in hand. That's such a beautiful thing to see. What a God-honoring thing it is to see. And the opposite is... is Pitiful to see. I can't help when I was thinking about this. I think of my mother. My mother had seven children of her own, so she knew the, the weariness that I'm talking about. But boy, would she have sharp words for someone, for a husband who was falling down on his, on his task to support his wife. And I can remember right here in Kalamazoo, down on Sheridan, where my uh, grandparents lived, my mother, uh, some, one of the, her siblings was there. Uh, he was the father. And uh, his wife was pregnant quite far along, and it was brutally hot. It was so hot. And, uh, and, and he wanted to go home to his house. Well, his house was not air-conditioned. And so the, the, my mother's mom and his mom said, why don't you stay here? This house is air-conditioned. You go home in the morning and, and you know, at least have a good night's sleep. No, 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 the man, you know how it is, right? He wanted to go home. And my mom drew herself up. I could still see her. They're all five foot two of her. Her eyes were blazing with fire. And she had sharp words for that man. And I don't know how it ended up. But boy, that memory is fixed in my head about uh, that man's responsibility to care for his pregnant wife in the heat. And how she uh, really took him to task for that. And uh, I remember that. Well, whatever the case may be, my friends, this is the task of a husband to do this good. May I say something to the mothers too here, though? about finding your husband. That's the title of this application, finding your husband. You know that the text has said that, you're to, that husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way. And I think, uh, dear uh, wives and mothers amongst us, 
that the way to find your husband and to get his help, right, also has to be done in an understanding way. Not to say, you never help out around here. You never do anything. That, that's guaranteed to shut him down, right? That's not living with your husband in an understanding way. Husbands like to be the hero. Right, we learned that way back in premarital counseling. Husbands like to be the hero. So if you change that a little bit, and I think if you say, I need help with A, B, C, or X, Y, and Z. I need, I, I'm suffering here. Or this is not working out well for me here. Now something stirs in the soul of that man, right? Because he can come to the rescue. Am I speaking the truth? That's a word that I would give, a word of advice for mothers as they seek to find their husband and to get his help in their daily task so that they don't grow weary in well-doing. Watch your language. Live with your husband. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And know how God has wired men and know how God has wired women. And act and live in your married life with that understanding. And husbands, when your wife does that, I hope it doesn't need to be said that you step up. And again, here I, I almost, in a sense, will appeal to your manly pride. That when your wife asks for help, that you help her. That you go to her rescue. And that you do the, the manly thing to come to the rescue of the woman that God has given you. And I hope that you can, uh, again, display before the watching world a husband and a wife going through life arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder. What a beautiful thing that is. And what a beautiful testimony that the God who created us and the God who brings people together in marriage did it properly, did it rightly. In the old, uh, early church, in the time of the church fathers, when the Roman persecution was taking place, there's a word in one of the church history books that says that the pagans used to say, what women the Christians have. You can understand why, right? That when they live together in that understanding way, there's a beautiful picture of what God has done for his people. What women the Christians have. I would hope that it would be said also about us. So find your husband. Find your husband. And then the fifth point. Wait patiently. My friends, here too. We don't take what the, the Thessalonians did, right? And say, well, God's going to return soon, so I'm just going to stop working, right? No. But look at Revelation 14, 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. My friends, there comes a time of rest. This is the time for labor and for toil, sweat and pain. But don't lose your focus on the reward that's coming. That for those who faithfully serve the Lord, for those who do not grow weary in well-doing, and when we do grow weary in well-doing, that we repent of it and go back to doing good. All the time, my friends, we can keep our eyes on that prize. We can run that race looking, following our Savior, and being assured that we will rest from our labors. In the book of Hebrews, he says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God.
And friends, I think, again, that such a hope would give us a kind of strength, wouldn't it? To continue on in the work that God has called us to do. To know that there is an end. That there is a time coming when this heaven is going to be rolled up like a scroll. The sky is going to be rolled up like a scroll and Christ is going to come. And he's going to set up a new heaven, a new earth, where righteousness dwells. Well, my friends, I pray that God will give us then to look confidently to that rest and to wait expectantly for it. May God bless these words to us, shall we pray. Lord, we draw near to you at the close of this service. Lord, where there are those amongst us who are weary, those who are broken down, those who are tempted even to surrender, to give up, Lord, I pray that such a message as we heard this evening from the book of Thessalonians would encourage us to look into the love of God and in the steadfastness of Jesus Christ and to find there new strength to continue doing the good that you have called us to do. Lord, give us also a hope that one day we shall enter into our rest, even, Lord, as you have also entered into your rest. Lord, what a mystery that is to us that we can enter into your rest and that the rest which you have uh, which you enjoy in heaven, that you invite us also to enter into it and to take courage while we are here on this earth, to labor and to work, to repent of our growing weary, to repent of our undisciplined life, and to wait expectantly and patiently for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, minister to your people this evening. Bless them and keep them. and Cause your face to shine upon them. And we pray, Lord, that we may go forth from this building, that we may wake up Monday morning and Tuesday morning resolved to do all the good we can while we live and to wait expectantly for our great reward. And all this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's uh, turn now in the red hymnal to number 514. Number 514, O love, remember our prayer this evening is that God would direct us into the love of God. And now this hymn, O love, that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. Number 514, the four verses in the red hymnal.
is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Amen.